Good morning, everyone. We're having a quick look at Psalms in these next two weeks, uh, one and two, uh, and maybe some more to follow uh, eventually, because I love the Psalms. Now let's pray, and uh, if you've got Psalm 1 there still open, that'd be great. Heavenly Father, please be with us this morning and open our eyes to this psalm and see how it leads us to know you better through the Lord Jesus. Amen. As I said, if you've got your Bibles, that'd be great, or your phones. We're going to go to Psalm 1, but we're going to be moving around Psalms a little bit, and uh, sometimes it'll be helpful just to, to go with me to that place and read it as I read it. Uh, do you have a song that always reminds you of a certain place and a certain time in your life? I'm sure you do. Maybe it's when you've met your boyfriend or girlfriend for the first time. Or it could be a road trip song. It might be a song that you like running to. And uh, you always remember that song as you pound the pavement. Uh, it could be a wedding anniversary. Put on any Beach Boys song for me. Reminds me of my uh, old gallant, burnt orange was. 1970s, Beach Boys, going to the beach, roof racks, board nailed to the car because I couldn't ride a board. <laughs> but it looked good. Girl by my side, usually my sister. <laughs> but that's where it takes me. Play the Rolling Stones and there in my room, 1969. It's a long time ago, isn't it? In the dark with my quadraphonic sound system. That just means four speakers. <laughs> and they're big and loud. My parents yelling, turn it down. What's that rubbish you're listening to? Sing the hymn, praise the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. I'm there at a family funeral. Seems to be the hymn of choice for the family, that uh, extended family that have uh, passed on. Songs in the Bible can always take you back to a time and a place. The first song ever written, recorded, was by Miriam, Moses' sister. And again, it takes us back to a time when Israel had just crossed over the Red Sea. Uh, they defeated the armies of Pharaoh. And, Mary, and Miriam sings this song, which we probably sung in our youth as well. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider is hurled into the sea. Do you remember singing something like that? Later on, the song asks the question, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer, of course, is no one. So Israel Israelites said this song in the years that followed and the decades and the centuries. It reminded them again and again of that time when God saved them from the land of the pharaohs. Later on, it was the Psalms that became the songbook of the Israelite people. In fact, it was Jesus' songbook. They're the Psalms. They're the, the writings he would have known off by heart. And for the majority of church history, it was the Psalms that we listened to. Uh, if you're as old as me or a little older, you would have uh, been in the Anglican church. You would have said a, a psalm every Sunday morning, usually the same psalm. And then there'd be a choice of psalms after that. But if you've got your Bibles there and you want to keep uh, your finger in Psalm 1 and then turn to Psalm 95... You'll see a psalm there that I think is a wonderful psalm to read at the beginning of a service. And it really reminds us of what uh, being in church is all about. Uh, this is Psalm 95. I'm just going to read a bit to you. It's page 595 if you're looking for it. 
Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving to extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his and he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God. For he is our maker and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. That's what meeting is all about, isn't it? Coming together under the hand of God, acknowledge him as the creator, the one that we're going to play and sing music to, and bowing before him. And then if you read the rest of the psalm, there's a warning that goes on and says, look, if God is like this, be aware that you don't fall away. That, that's our God. So make sure that you're in tune and in relationship with this God. Now, as we read the Bible, we know that uh, different parts of the Bible speak differently. That's why it's always quite amusing when uh, people take bits of the Bible to quote and say, there it is, it's in the Bible. What they don't realise is they're either quoting from a letter or from a poem or from a history book. You've got to look at the genre of the particular bits of the Bible to make sure the quote is accurate and makes sense. And so it is with the Psalms. There's different genre in the Psalms. The Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, our Psalms where we approach God with requests, our Psalms of lament. Our laments are where you get pretty sad and uh, you cry about things and you weep about things. Nowadays, I guess the nearest we get to a lament is a country and western song about a dead dog. But um, laments in the Bible are very important. Uh, they are great because there are times in our life when we're very sad and we're very upset and we think life is unfair. And this is where you find the language to talk about the things like this. You'd probably remember those psalms where at the end of the psalm it says, I wish my enemies were dead and that you would take their babies and dash their heads against stones. And we all say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But we cringe inside, don't we? We go, what is this? What's going on here? How can they say this in the psalm? Well, it's a psalm of lament. And what it's saying is that God gives us the language when we're mad and angry and we feel so upset. God says, look, I'd rather you'd say this to me than actually go out and do it. So laments are good and we need to read laments from time to time. But there are some psalms you can't put into any genre. You can't sort of uh, pigeonhole them. And Psalm 1, the one we're looking at this morning, is like that. Uh, some say it's a psalm of wisdom. And it is. It's very similar to the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that it espouses. Some say it's a gateway psalm. It opens up other psalms in the book of Psalms. It gives us some themes that are going to be picked up in the other writings. But really what this psalm is about is about the options we have in life. And the writer says fairly clearly there are only two ways to live. You might remember the little um, pamphlet we all had. We all had to learn two ways to live and the diagrams we had to draw if we were going to talk to people about the two ways in life. There are only two ways to life, the psalmist says. Uh, you're either on the right way or you are on the wrong way. But he goes on to say there are two humanities, two ways of living, and there are two ends. 
two ways to go. This psalm is highly stylized. The very first word is blessed or blessed. And the last word in the psalm is destruction or perishing. The first word in the psalm begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last word in the psalm begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's very compact and stylized here. The writer's trying to get across this point, isn't he? There are two ways to live, two humanities and two destinies. So let's unpack that with those three ideas in mind. Firstly, the two ways. Blessed is the man. Now, man encompasses both men and women here. It's not a sexist statement. Uh, God made the male and female in his image, it says in Genesis. Male and female, he created them. It's a generic term. So here is this singular figure who represents both sexes as an example of the godly person. Because you see in someone the Lord God is behind the scenes. You see the Lord appearing in verse 2. Notice the capitals. And again in verse 6. Again, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Notice the capitals there. Uh, Uppercase. This is not a title like Lord Vader from Star Wars. This is the Hebrew or Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to uh, himself to his people when Moses asked at the burning bush, who shall I say uh, told me to go and rescue the people? And God gives his intimate name to them. So right at the outset, we get the idea that this is, this is a personal relationship. To be blessed, you need to be in a personal relationship with God where God looks after you and gives you his name. Adam and Eve were like this. They were blessed in the garden, weren't they? They knew the joy as they walked with God in the cool of the night with their creator. They had the capacity to live holy and unblemished lives. The righteous man in Psalm 1 is like this, except he's not living in that paradise. He's living outside the garden. He's living in a fallen world. He has to work hard at not being like those around him. So that's why the writer says, blessed is the man who does not. He begins with the negatives. Three negatives here. Adam and Eve simply had a boundary, don't eat the fruit of that tree. This man, this person, the boundaries are a bit more complicated for those who live outside the garden. We're surrounded all everywhere by worldly influences. We only have to do Christmas shopping to know what the world has to offer in the place of the Lord Jesus. Once again, look how skillfully the psalmist puts this psalm together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Notice the progression. Walk, stop, stand, sit, counsel, listening, way, following, seat, becoming one of them. And then the three groups of people, wicked, sinners and mockers. It's Hebrew parallelism. And it's defining a progression of life downhill, deeper and deeper into sin. He talks about the counsel of the wicked. Those who have no place in God's worldview, perhaps the neighbours we live next to. We wouldn't say they're wicked, they're just different in the way they think about things, the way they view the world. Uh, The psalmist says, beware of their advice. Don't believe everything you hear or you begin to think that way yourself. Sift the advice through what you know about God and we know about God from reading the Bible. So the other day someone was talking to me about retirement and I said, well, look, 
I, I take a few holidays now and then, but um, most of the time I'm rostered on the church. And this person said, well, look, you, you know, you've reached that age now where you can say, blow that, you can do what you like. You're free, you've, you've done your hard work. And I had to take that advice with what I know to be true about the Bible. It doesn't talk about retirement in the Bible. It talks about periods of work and rest, but it also talks about service and doesn't put an end on service. And so you've got to sift the evidence carefully, haven't you, uh, as you listen to people around you. Taking wrong advice, we're told in this psalm, will eventually lead to wrong behaviour. Standing in the way of sinners is all about imitating, following what they do, copying how they behave and accepting their lifestyle. When I was younger, I played um, high-grade sport in cricket and and rugby union. And uh, the pressure there to behave in the way that the team behaved was very great. I wanted to be part of the team, but I didn't want to adopt their lifestyle because it was so anti-Christian, especially in the way they treated both alcohol and women. And so once again, you could be easily led into sitting with these people and doing what they said rather than sort of walking this tightrope of being part of the group but not imitating them. And then we find that standing in the way of sinners leads to the mocker or the scoffer, the arrogantly self-sufficient. These people mock God and they ridicule faith. We see their columns in the paper. We hear them on the radio and the TV. And if we're not careful, we can continue down that slippery slope to lead to that position. Now, the person who is blessed by God doesn't take their advice doesn't copy their behaviour and doesn't settle down with them. We probably all know of people who've done this, who we've walked with who said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then they've just sort of changed over the years and now the distinction is just not there at all. Remember Lot in the Bible, Abraham's nephew? When we meet him, he's in Sodom and he's sitting at the gate at Sodom and we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. There he is sitting, taking on the lifestyle of those around him. And we see that by the choices he made later on when the angels come and want his uh, companions and he wants to send out his girls so they can use his girls, his daughters. What's the hallmark then of the godly person? If these are the knots, what's the hallmark? What, what, what's the chief characteristic of the person who's the believer in the world. It's not that our neighbours are easygoing and carefree and we're rule-driven. It's not that they're cool and we're like the Simpsons family next door, the, you know, the, um, the Flanders family. The thing that distinguishes the believer in this psalm is that they meditate on the law day and night. See it there in verse 2? They meditate on his law day and night. Now, the word there for law is Torah. And uh, Torah means not just the rules and the regulations that Moses got, but the whole gambit, the whole of God's uh, revelation to his people. Now, often in the Psalms, the writer will uh, use different words to describe the same thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, I think it's in uh, Psalm 142. He he talks about um, commands and laws and statutes, saying the same sort of thing. 
But here he says law twice because he wants to emphasise the fact that this person uh, is surrounded by the word of God. That's what makes them the person who they are. He delights in the Torah and on this Torah he meditates day and night. It grabs our attention. It's everything that God has told us about. And immediately you see this person has to be actually born again to be like this. How can you love God's law if you don't have the spirit in you? Because later on Paul tells us the sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It can't do so. It's not in our nature to love God's law. Since being expelled from the garden, we don't delight in the law of God. We're outside of that relationship. Only those who've experienced the Holy Spirit in their lives now have the capacity to love the law and engage God with their minds. This is where Christian experience begins. So often we talk about an emotional impact or we confuse sentiment with Christian experience. But genuine Christian experience begins with the mind that's being transformed by God. A person in the psalm is engaging with God, with their mind, and they're meditating on it. And again, the word meditating doesn't conjure up the idea of someone sitting with their knees crossed and their hands in the air thinking God thoughts in silence. Meditating in the Hebrew language is a vocal word. It's muttering. It's like the mum with four kids. I'll pick on you two. As you're getting your kids dressed for school and you're muttering, if this child does this one more time, I'm going to... But you don't. Do you? No, you don't. So it's, it's, that, it's that muttering, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that saying stuff. Uh, a great example is in Psalm uh, 42. If you want to have a look at that one with me, Psalm 42, verses 1 to 5 there. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a sad psalm. Uh, page 560. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. And while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Here's the muttering. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God and I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. Godly self-talk. That's what's going on here in this psalm. That's what the writer's saying. We need to meditate on God's word and know it so well we can actually say to ourselves in times of distress. So here are the two ways we talked about at the beginning. People going the way of the scoffers and the sinners, listening to the wrong advice, and then delighting in the wrong thing, staying and sitting in the way of the mocker. Opposed to that is a believer who delights in the law of God. And then there are two humanities back in Psalm 1. And we see those in verses 3 and 6 of this psalm. Let me read it to you. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. 
Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Here's the godly person. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's planted next to running water. He has a regular supply of fruit, green leaves all year round, and the tree prospers. Uh, in our drought-stricken country, you see it, don't you, with trees that are near a water source. Trees away from the water source are dying and they're sort of wilting, but the trees near a creek or a river are green and sprouting. And this is what the writer's talking about here. This is his first illustration. It's an idyllic picture, and it comes right at the beginning of the book of Psalms. However, life isn't like that, is it? And the writers in the rest of the Psalms often go back and say, well, that sounds great, but what about times when the leaves do wither and the fruit dries up? And the writers write about these things. How is it that the godly who always seem to suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? So come with me to Psalm 73 for a minute. Psalm 73 in verses 1 to 5. Good to hear the rustle of paper and not phones. Uh, here's the writer. It says, Surely good, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. See what the writer's saying here? Um, that Psalm 1 sounds great, but in reality, things aren't always like that. But what Psalm 1 is saying is that whatever it looks like now, in eternity, in the big picture, God wins. The godly will prosper in the end. Being by the water, the tree is always nourished. It's always productive. Its leaf never withers. This tree just keeps on keeping on despite the circumstances around you. This is what the godly person looks like. Always productive in godly living. Enduring in the face of hardship and storm. Having a prosperity of being rich towards God that can't be counted in dollars and cents. And then the writer continues in Psalm 1, Not so the wicked. Small words, aren't they? But see the distinction? We're told that they like chaff, that little flap that lies over the seed of, of grain. And when you thresh, you throw the wheat up and the heavier wheat comes down and the chaff blows away. The godly like a strong tree, watered, healthy, growing the fruit of godliness in their lives. And the wicked are like a lolly wrapping on a breezy day. You throw it in the air and off it goes. Well, you shouldn't throw it in the air, but you know what happens. Yeah, you get the point. So there are two humanities, two ways of living. One is substantial and one is insubstantial. In God's eyes, they're just like chaff. Finally, there are two destinies. The godly prosper, but not so the wicked. They may appear to be prospering in life, but they have no future. Again, Psalm 73, and you don't need to look it up this time, I'll just show it to you says this, the writer goes on in the same sort of 
wavy thinking. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Why do the wicked prosper? But then it comes to a change, a startling change in his thinking when he goes to the sanctuary of the Lord. And later in the same psalm, he writes these words. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. There I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Who wins? God. Who wins? You, if you're like the tree planted by the water. These people won't be part of the assembly of the righteous. They'll have no part in the people of God. They're excluded from the only community that counts. And people need to understand this, don't they? if they choose the ungodly way. When terrorists blow themselves up and take others with them and they think they're going to a place where there's going to be 72 virgins and celestial paradise forever, they wake up in hell, excluded from the assembly, in a place of judgment and torment. That's the reality. That's the end of everyone who's not building their life around the work of God. Look at the way the psalm concludes. The way of the wicked will perish. Two humanities, two ways, two destinies. And from our first reading, Jesus picks this up. If we'd have been able to read the chapters before the one we read, we would have seen this. Jesus speaks about two gates, two paths, the broad and the narrow, two trees, one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. Two builders. Foolish and a wise. Two foundations, a rock and the sand. And Jesus says, if you want to be on the right side of history, if you want to be in the assembly of the righteous at the end, then do the will of my Father. Listen to these words of mine and do them. Be like the godly person who delights in the law of God. And did you notice the destiny of the believer in this psalm? The Lord, in verse 6, watches over the way of the righteous. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows every step along the way. He knows every obstacle in the path, every twist, every turn. God knows these things. The word watches over in the Hebrew is translated, it's more like the word know. And it's a very intimate word. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a child. So... Knowing gives you the idea of someone knowing something, somebody intimately, and God's totally got our backs here. The ungodly perish, but the godly will never be out of the sight of a loving and caring God. Two ways, two humanities, two ends. The writer says, where are you? And we want to say, I'm the godly. I'm the one who loves God, and I love his law, and I love reading it, and I love knowing the fact that God loves me and cares for me. But when you think about it a little bit longer, 
There's only one person in all of history who's actually lived up to the psalm, who fulfills Psalm 1. One person who delights fully in the law of the Lord. One person who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. One person who always prospered in their work. Only one person could say, I am the way, the truth and the life. And we say amen to that because that's true. So this statement is both damning and uplifting. Damning because when I look at this psalm, I see how far short I fall of God's standard. I think about the guilty charges pronounced against me because of my sin and the fact that I don't deserve to be counted amongst the assembly of the righteous. I'm constantly climbing that slippery slope and constantly falling down. What I need is Christmas. What I need is a saviour. So I'm lifted up as I look to Jesus in faith as the one who fulfills this psalm for me. At his death, the guilt due to me is put on Jesus. He becomes a curse so that I might receive the blessing. Blessed is the man, we're told, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. That's me. That's you. And it's all because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, its power. It tells us what we're like. It tells us what we can become. And it tells us how we can get there. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.